you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. That's where we will be this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to use one, there are some underneath the chairs or in front of you underneath the chairs. You can grab one. If you don't have one and you'd like one, happy birthday. Uh, Take it home with you. So while you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us, and then let's go ahead and let's get into the Word of God. Father, it's uh, only your spirit can change the heart of people. Only your spirit can lead us in obedience to grow in godliness and holiness. And so I just desperately ask this morning that your spirit would be so active in working in our hearts, in our minds, and that through us seeing what Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, that our hearts would be stirred. And so I just want to boldly ask this morning that if there are those who are living in sin, your children living in sin, rebelling against you, that your spirit would convict them and your kindness would lead them to repentance. Father, I ask if there are those who are weary this morning from this past week, they just feel like they've been beaten up and spit out by this world, that they would, that the spirit of God would comfort and encourage them. And for all of us, that your word would correct us to see you for who you are. God, give us soft hearts. Open up our minds and allow me to speak with with clarity and simplicity. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And what we have been doing the past few weeks is specifically going through verses 6 through 11. And the reason why we've been doing this is because Paul is calling this church here to be unified with one another by their humble service towards one another. It's actually a pretty incredible um, encouragement or command that he's giving them. And we're seeing this very clear theme in the book of Philippians about the church here in Philippi. Paul is encouraging them, be unified. He prays for them in the beginning that they would be unified. He tells them, Partner, that you've been partnering with me by being unified with me in the advancement of the gospel. He tells them later on in chapter one, live as citizens of heaven, live worthy in the manner of the, the gospel. And how do you do this? By being of one mind, one spirit. And then he goes on in the beginning of chapter two, and he says, look, hey, if there, is, if, if there just so happens to be any encouragement in Christ, so if I'm saying any of these things in this first part of this letter, and there is any encouragement that is coming out of your heart, if there's any comfort from Christ's love that you're feeling right now, if there is 
any participation, even the smallest of participation in the Spirit, then complete my joy. Complete my joy by what? Having the same mind, the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Right here, right now, Paul is calling them to be unified. He's saying, look, you want to make it in this world? You want to make it against the enemies that have been attacking me, the enemies that are around you? You better be unified. The only way that you can be unified, though, is in Christ. Through his love, through his participation of the Spirit. And he says how to do this. He says, if you want to do this, then do this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Simply put, Paul is saying, don't look at your own selfish gains in this world. If you are unified with Christ and you are unified with the body, look at people around you and their needs more important than yours. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is saying that we as the church, that the church right here in Philippi must pursue unity by humble service towards one another. And hey, look, let's just call it what it is. This is what people have been searching for for thousands of years. Have they not? Look, in a time like this, right now, I remember a few years ago I went to a conference that was um, specifically tailored towards church planters. And so I've got no idea why I was there, but I ended up going there. And I remember sitting in a room and they were talking about college campus ministries and how nobody likes the institutional aspect of church anymore. And so getting people to come to church is a hard thing, especially for those that are younger. They don't see the church as necessary anymore. And I remember saying in that conversation, I actually, I actually think that's wrong. I think that people are looking for a transcendent mission to be on. And so why do you think we have all of these different clubs and communities? Why do you think there's such thing as the LGBTQ community or the Black Lives Matter organization or you name it? It's because they are looking for this type of unity here on earth and they're not going to find it. apart from Christ. Because at the end of the day, organizations like that are selfish, selfishly concerned about their own interests. And so this has been something that mankind has been wrestling for forever. How do we walk forward unified? 
And so what does Paul do? Paul actually, he gives us one of the biggest illustrations that he could ever give. He gives us the illustrations of illustrations. This is the trump card of illustrations. He gives us God's purpose. (laughs) So Paul says, serve in this type of way if you want to be unified. And the illustration that I'm going to use is God's life here on earth as the illustration. That's what he's saying. And what Paul is saying is because of Jesus' humble service and obedience, he is highly exalted. That's what we're going to see this morning. So if my son was in here this morning, there is a high probability that if I were to say, um, Uh, something about this passage, he would say, why? That seems to be the word right now. This morning, Sharice got him breakfast, and the first thing he says is, why? Well, you said you were hungry. Why? Well, because you didn't eat dinner last night. Why? I don't know. You decided not to eat dinner. This is what he would ask, and this is the question, and these not, or this is, yeah, the question in these nine verses, what, what's being asked is, why do we mimic Jesus? Why is the church, out of all people, called to mimic Christ? If we're going to pursue this humble service and obedience to be a unified church, why? Why is it Christ? This is what Paul is answering here. We, we read verse 9 and it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so here, let me try this. My youth pastor growing up used to say this during the youth messages. Y'all, when, when we see a therefore, we need to ask the question, what is it there for? Never understood what he meant. It was probably because of the Texan, uh, Texan accent. Until I read it and could be like, oh, okay. The question that we're asking is, what is the therefore, all one word, there for? And Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him. Because of this. So because of this. This is the outcome. And what is because of this? Well, this is what we've been looking at the past few weeks, hasn't it been? The amazing reality that God himself doesn't count equality with himself a thing to be grasped, but empties himself. I mean, that's... As Paul says here, something that's just ungraspable. What does God do? He empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbles himself to the point of death, even death, on a cross. God himself comes down in the form of a man, 
And he humbles himself to the point of death, even death, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the amazing reality of what theologians call the incarnation. It's that God himself makes himself known to us by coming and dwelling with us. And God subjects himself not using his infinite power for any worldly advantages here on earth, but humbles himself in obedience to the Father's will. Living this this perfect life that you and I have been called to from the very beginning of our lives, not being able to live that way at all. And he does it so much to the point of death. Christ's obedience leads to his death. And we saw last week that he even prays to the Father, let this cup pass from me, not my will, yours be done. And he humbly submits in obedience to the Father's will. This is why this one word, therefore, is here. Because God has done the most amazing thing. Something you and I couldn't have done. And so because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Look, you can take a deep breath right now and Exhale, because guess what? The pressure's not on you. The pressure fell on Jesus. And he could handle the pressure. And because he could handle the pressure, he is now highly exalted. There is no name that is higher than his name. God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. I mean, think about that. Throughout history, thousands of years of history, there is not one name that is higher than Jesus' name. And there is not one name that ever will be higher than Jesus' name. I mean, think about it. You may be asking yourself, okay, so what about his mother Mary? No, her name is not higher than Jesus' name. What about Gandhi? No. Muhammad? No. Mother Teresa? No. All of the the presidents, prime ministers, kings and queens and, and dictators that have lived, that are living and that will live, not one of them will have a name that is far above Jesus's. There is not even a name that will be just a sliver above Jesus's. Jesus's name was shot out into outer space and is not coming back down. That's how high it is. His name is above 
all names because of his obedience to the Father's will and doing the one thing that we were called to do that we could never do. And so his name is above all names. And so then the question that lies before us is, then what exactly does this exaltation look like? Well, we know that his name is above all names. We know that's, that's the case. But there are some actions that will take place that we have to look at. And the first is submission. We, we read verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. One day when the curtain to earth's life is going to drop and that planet earth will waste away and the new kingdom will be inaugurated, the reality is that every knee will bow. Every knee is going to bow at the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. At the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. It's because Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also the one to come. Look, Revelation makes clear to us that he is the one who is worthy to take the scroll. He is the only one that has defeated death, and so every knee will bow. However, Paul isn't just limiting it to the Philippian church. He's not just limiting it to the Christians that are in this church. What does Paul tell us? Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow where? In heaven. On earth. And under the earth. Every knee, everywhere, will bow at the name of Jesus. Think about that. Just at the name of Jesus, everybody one day will recognize and bow to Him. That tells us that there will not be one creature who will not bow at the name of Jesus. I was just reading and, and, and came to this just amazing reality that when Isaiah sees the heavenly beings, he sees them praising God, saying, holy, holy, holy. And hundreds of years later, when John is seeing the heavenly beings, guess what they're doing? The same exact thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so it won't just be the heavenly beings that bow. 
But it will be all those who are on earth. And it will be all those who are under the earth that at the name of Jesus will bow. And so here's the question that oftentimes comes up that I just want us to wrestle with a little bit. Because a lot of people come to this passage and they'll say that, okay, then this proves that there's such thing as a theology called universalism. This theology then teaches that it doesn't matter if you're a believer or not a believer because this passage says right here that every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Universalism teaches that even those that aren't Christians will make it to heaven, that those that don't believe that Jesus is Lord will make it to heaven. Is that a fair interpretation of this passage? No. That could possibly be a fair interpretation of this passage. Because what do we do when Jesus tells people to repent? Before they're thrown into the lake of fire, what do we do with Jesus when he says, many will come to me, Lord, Lord, and he'll say to them, get out of here and be cast out of heaven and thrown into the eternal abyss. And so it can't be universalism that's going on here. Because first off, that would just be completely unfair. I wouldn't want to worship a God that was like that. If there was no justice that he acted on, then why wouldn't we just live life the way we wanted to? Party today for tomorrow we die or whatever the, the, the quote is. Or in a more modern version for us, uh, younger millennials. YOLO, you only live once. Right, so to put it simply right here, do you know what Paul is saying? Is He is saying that everyone is either going to bow or everyone's either going to bow. So at the end of this age, it's not going to be who, who is greater, who's better, Jesus or you put in the blank. It's not this universalistic type of idea that, well, at least they were trying to worship the right God, so he'll let them in. This isn't going to be a who is greater, Aaron Rodgers or Brett Favre, we all know the answer to that. It's Jim McMahon. It's not going to be the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. It's not going to be Apple or Android or coffee or tea. No, this is a very decisive, declared, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Just at the name of Jesus. And what else? Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So every knee is going to bow at the name of Jesus. And while kneeing, every tongue is going to confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Does this mean that everyone is going to confess Jesus Christ in a saving way? No. Does this mean that everyone will go to heaven? No. Like I said, Jesus himself, he tells people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and if they do not repent, then they will go to a, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
See, there will be two types of people that bow and confess, and there will only be two types of people that bow and confess. One is out of relief, out of worship, out of praising the majesty of Jesus Christ and his great works. And the other will be out of regret. As Isaiah says, out of shame. Wishing they could go back. Wishing that as Jesus tells us in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, just to write a letter and send it to their family. So two people, one out of great pleasure and delight, bowing and confessing, and the other out of deep regret, realizing the chances they got during their life to look to Christ is no more. Two different groups ending the same exact way bowing and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So this is the question then that we need to wrestle with individually. Where will you be bowing and confessing Jesus as your Lord? It's as simple as that. Wrestling with this question until you have your answer. Because Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross, everyone will bow down to him and confess him as Lord of all. So here's the question that maybe you're wrestling with right now. Is God just some type of ego-driven maniac? Who is he to force everyone to bow down and worship him? Who does he think he is saying that everyone one day will bow down, even the people that didn't acknowledge him as the Savior of the world. And here's where we must realize that this is what Paul is trying to get at here. Is that everyone will bow down and confess, not because God is an ego-driven maniac, but because he is actually worthy of everyone's worship. And on that day, when everyone will bow down and confess that he is Lord, everybody will realize just how worthy he is of their worship. And so whether it's out of praise and delight or regret and shame, both will come praising him because they will acknowledge that he is worthy. The one group will say, Worthy are you, Lord of God. Worthy are you, Son of David. 
For our hope has been in you all of this time. And the other will come bowing down and say, Worthy are you, I am an unjust sinner deserving of your wrath. So God will not force them. Everyone will acknowledge he is worthy. Because Jesus Christ is Lord, we should follow him and his lead. So I just want to ask us a few questions right now. Please stay with me a little longer. If you are a professing believer in Jesus, these are some questions that you should be asking yourself right now. Does my life resemble the life of one who believes that Jesus is worthy of my worship? Let me say that again. Do I, if I'm a believer, do I live my life as if I believe that Jesus Christ is worthy of my worship? If you do, then in what ways? See, in context here, what Paul is trying to draw out of them is that you humbly serve one another by counting each other's needs more important than your own needs because Jesus has done that for you. God has done that for you. And so one of the marks of a true believer is one who humbly serves somebody who has a differing opinion than them. See, what Paul isn't advocating here for is that this church just be, just have every single minor and larger opinion the same. No, he's saying these smaller opinions, throw them out the window. If you need to serve your brother or sister in this way and you disagree with them, then serve them. Put off your old self. One of the true marks of a Christian is this humble service. And, and why am I very confident of saying this? It's because this is what Jesus says. Doesn't Jesus say? Doesn't he tell us, you want to be great? What do we have to do if we want to be great here on earth? or in the kingdom, serve. If we want to be great in the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us, serve. What Paul is telling us, the reason why we serve is because Jesus is great in the kingdom because Jesus has served us. And so one of the marks of a true Christian is their humble service towards one another. Do you follow Christ's lead in this area of your life? Next. 
if you are not a Christian here this morning, I just challenge you to look over these three verses, 9, 10, and 11. Since Jesus has the name above every name, because Jesus is exalted above all, because one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, would you just take some time to contemplate what that means then? Is that God himself came to serve you by dying for your sins so that you could be reconciled back to him and spend eternity worshiping him, stewarding his creation? Let me finish like this, if you don't mind. There is a type of way to read Scripture. And it's all right to do it some of the time and not all of the time. And it's this fancy word. I was talking about this with um, the life group that I'm a part of. And it's called typology. All right, so hopefully I don't butcher this last part for us. What that means is we can look at some pieces of Scripture and say, ah, this actually kind of mimics this over here. There's kind of some same themes and images and pictures going on that tell a very similar story. And we actually see this happening in this portion of Scripture. Do you know why it's so important for us as believers in Jesus Christ to say, I'm going to count your interest more highly than my own? Yes, it's, it's because Jesus is exalted on high and we want to mimic him. But let's just compare the first Adam to the second Adam in this. All right here, I, sh I shut my Bible too early, shame on me. We come to verse 6, who though he was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We could say about the first Adam, who though was in the image of God and wanted to be like God, took the fruit. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And because he wanted to be like God, the first Adam, he took the fruit and ate the fruit And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because the first Adam wanted to be like God, took the fruit and ate the fruit, was kicked out of the garden because of sin entering into their hearts. You see, when we as Christians do not 
pursue unity in this way, like Jesus has pursued humble service, when we don't pursue humble service towards one another like Jesus has, then we are living like the first Adam. We are saying, my needs, my own ambitions, my selfish interests are more important than yours because I want you to be subjected to my authority, to my rule. I want you to live in my kingdom. However, when we pursue humble service like Christ, then we mimic and show people the reality of Christ's life. I don't know about you guys, as a Christian, I would rather live like a Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you. Please, Continue to grow us to love you above everything else. Grow us to love you more than our family, our spouses, our kids, our jobs, our houses, our cars, our vacations, ourselves. so that we could worship you. Be so kind to us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.